Our passage today comes from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that is on page 1894. 1894. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. 16 starts. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For, we, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the guidance that it gives us. We thank you for the guide rails that it gives us. As we continue uh, this series going through uh, the five solas of the Reformation, we pray that we would continue to recapture that vision of the Reformation, uh, what makes us Protestants. We pray that we, it would help to uh, not only just educate us and inform us about our history, Lord, but it would bring us back into line. It would shore up many ways that we might have strayed away from that original reformational impulse. We pray that this would be to all your glory, uh, to all your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in the passage before us, the Apostle Peter uh, is engaging with a group of objectors um, that are somewhat protesting uh, the apostles and they're saying basically that the apostles are gullible we could say uh, that they followed fables and stories that they might not have invented it uh, but that they are kind of blindly uh, following after it. Uh, they themselves, uh, this is probably a group of, uh, uh, called the proto-Gnostics. You can talk to me afterwards if you want more information. Uh, but they themselves likely would have uh, rejected uh, the humanity of Jesus. Uh, and so they would have rejected any type of real historical narrative about him. And so Peter makes a, a somewhat interesting argument in response that I'd like to sort of piece together for us. He starts by telling us about a certain moment in the ministry of Jesus that he was a witness to, right? Because the claim is you're just, you're, you're following after fables. You weren't there. And so he tells this, uh, this event that he was a witness to called the transfiguration. Uh, most of you probably have heard the term the transfiguration. This is one of the rare events in the ministry of Jesus that is either explicitly taught uh, or alluded to in all four of the Gospels. So it's a very important event in the ministry of Jesus. It's found in Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9, and then it's alluded to in John 1. This was 
a moment at the top of the mountain when Peter, James, and John had gone up with Jesus to pray. And it's called the transfiguration because Jesus is transfigured before them. He transforms before them. And what he transforms to basically is his glorified nature, right? It, it, it's a picture of the absolute divinity of Christ in all of his glory. We're told that he, his robes shine like the sun, that he's pure white, that it's like looking at bright lightning strikes uh, is what some of the texts describe it as. Uh, We were told that God speaks from the heavens and he says, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples were told in these passages, fall on the ground. Because what else do you do when you're confronted with the glory of God, but you fall on the ground? Likely thinking that they're not going to make it. Right? If if you, if you're uh, familiar with, uh, with Jewish tradition, uh, unholiness, unrighteousness cannot stand in the presence of God and survive. That's why every time an angel shows up, (laughs) everyone is afraid. Um, But they survive. Jesus gently bends over, touches them, and tells them to stand up. And he tells them something strange. He says, go and don't tell anyone about it. They obviously told somebody. It's in all four Gospels. But this is the experience that Peter starts his argument with, right? He's contradicting the the claim that they're just following fables. He gives this mountaintop experience of the presence of the living God. But his argument isn't follow after my example, right? His his argument isn't if you really want to know God, pray to have a mountaintop experience like I did. Right? He doesn't say, pray that you'd have a miracle in your life so that you'll know Christ. That's not the argument that he makes. That's not how he responds. He doesn't say, I had my personal experience and that's my truth. Uh, that's how God revealed it to me. He says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I think most of us uh, are reading from the NIV today. If you've you've been in Sunday school with me or you've heard me preach before, I normally preach from either the ESV or the NASB. I just prefer those translations. Uh, In this case, I actually think the older NIV and the King James do a better job. Um, the, the word that is, is behind your translation. So if you read through the verse where it says, uh, it's made more certain, or it is, uh, it is more certain, or it's confirmed, whatever your translation is, that, that word, most of our translations translate it as a verb. I don't, I don't want to get too technical and go into, to grammar and everything, but right. Verb is an action. It's an adjective. The Greek word is an adjective. It's not a verb. Right? In this case, grammar really matters. It's not telling us something that's done to the prophetic word. Right? The, the, w- the original Greek isn't saying that, that the prophetic word is made more sure. Right? Or it's confirmed. It's not a verb. It's an adjective. Right? It's saying it is the more sure prophetic word. Does that distinction 
Make sense? It, it's describing it as something that is more reliable, more sure. It, it, it is something that is absolutely to be held in regard. Right? Not that it's made that way, but it is that way. Uh, this is the argument that Peter's making. I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the glorified Christ. Have any of you done that? No. But what do you have? You have the more sure prophetic word. You have the scriptures, and that's more important. He tells us, he goes on to tell us that, that it, it, is, it is men who are carried along by the Holy Spirit that give us this certain prophetic word. He tells us it's like a, a, a light that makes their path visible, like light shining in the darkness. He wraps up this section by saying that the scriptural authors themselves, he says the prophets, in this time period, prophets just, it, it's a way of describing biblical authors, right? We don't have to think of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, right? I mean, this is, this is Moses, this is David, this is Paul, this is Peter. He says that the prophets weren't driven by their own personal experiences. They weren't driven by their own interpretations. It's not them looking at the world around them and deciding, oh, this is what that means, right? They are carried along by the Holy Spirit to write exactly what God has for them to write to give to the church. It's more sure because it's not based on our personal experiences. Now, as many of you know, at Church in the Canyon, we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We're going through the five solas, right? We have them up on here in Latin. We have them up here in English, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. It's an interesting order. Sola Scriptura actually should go first by Scripture alone because it is by Scripture alone that we basically derive the rest of that. It's teaching us that Scripture is our ultimate authority. And so 500 years ago on October 31st, by the way, Halloween is also Reformation Day, uh, October 31st, uh, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, <laughs> What he was doing was, was kicking off one of the most revolutionary, world-changing movements that has ever existed on the planet, right? And if you read Luther's writings, he, he, had, he had no uh, idea that what he was doing, that, that strike of the nail, would lead to what it has led to. Um, for, for many, they, they, they say that the Reformation... Um, the core of the Reformation is an attempt to recapture the doctrines of justification by grace alone through faith alone. They have a really good case for that being the argument. But there's a foundational principle that they recaptured that led to that. There's a, there's a, there, I, I, we're going to talk about there's a difference in authority structure that happened that led to the Protestant Reformation. And this Reformation has changed everything about Western culture. I mean, it, 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 it's changed economics, it's changed business, it's changed art, it's changed dance, it's changed music, it's changed everything. It's changed how we do leisure. And one of the main issues 
one of the things that uh, Luther was getting at is whose authority does the church follow? That was a big, that, w- that was the, the driving, uh, undergirding question to everything. Is it, uh, is it, as Rome would say, is it the councils and the papacy and the cardinals that tell us how to interpret it, or is it the scriptures alone that are the authority? And for the Protestants, for the reformers, it's scripture alone that's our ultimate authority. It's scripture alone that gives us the direct revelation of God concerning himself and concerning our redemption and concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's scripture that tells us what God is like, what God desires, and how we can walk faithfully with him. If you remember the analogy that I gave Abigail at the beginning, there's a a similar one for the sermon. So imagine that that I told you that somewhere in Conejo Valley, I buried a million dollars. Don't ask how I got it, but I buried it. And I said, I gave, I, under your chairs is a map that I made for each one of you to go find it. Right? Then someone stands up and says, wait, 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 wait. Don't listen to Tyler. I had a dream last night. Tyler told me in the dream last night where you should actually go find it. Who are you going to trust? Do you trust me, I'm the one that hit it. I made the map, and I'm, I'm saying, this is how you go find it. Or are you going to listen to someone who, who you heard about it in a dream? Right? There's a change in authority. This is how the scriptures are. We have God as our creator, as our sustainer, as our judge, as our Lord, as our king, and he tells us, This is my map, basically. This is how you live in my creation in a way that's pleasing to me. You can listen directly to God or you can listen to someone else. And so when Martin Luther, convicted by the scriptures, thought that the teaching of the cardinals and the bishops and the councils were an error, it was because they had come up against the bulwark of scripture. They had started to, over uh, the millennia uh, since Christ, they had started to build an edifice of, uh, of certain doctrines that was divergent from what was in the scriptures. Because for Rome, the authority rested in the church. The authority that scripture had, it had because of the church. Uh, it, it had because the popes and the bishops and the councils gave it the authority and they were the ones who had the right to interpret it. A good example of this is the canon. Does everyone know what the canon is? When I say the canon, I don't mean like a big black thing that shoots cannonballs. The canon I- is, is what we describe as the 66 books. Why do we have these 66 books as the Bible? I don't know if you ever thought of that question. It's a kind of a strange question. Why these 66 books? We know there were other books. They didn't get included. This is a good litmus test for the difference between Rome and the Protestants. Rome says that we have these 66 books plus some apocryphal books. Not quite canon, but sort of. We have those because the church 
has authorized those as the books for use in the church. Right? These are the ones that, that, that the, the councils have agreed upon. We, we as the church and our traditions made it authoritative. Along comes Martin Luther. Protestants say, no. The church receives the canon. We recognize the canon. We're not the ones authorizing it. We're receiving it. Right? To put it another way, it's the difference between what some theologians have said is an, an authoritative list of books and a list of authoritative books. Right? It, it's, it's, it's a list of the church, the authority of the church has said, this is your list. Compared to a list of the church has said, these are the books that God has given us. That's the difference. For, for the Protestants, the scripture stands above tradition. So if you remember last week, Dale gave the really nice analogy that, that, that scripture is above everything else. Right? Doesn't mean we throw out tradition. We read from the Westminster Confession or Catechism today. Doesn't mean it's entirely useless, but scripture is above it. It stands as an authority over human tradition. And so when scripture and the councils contradicted each other for Rome, what the council said went. That was authoritative. And when the Pope thought something that was contrary to the scripture or contrary to a prior Pope, what that Pope said went. That was authoritative. Rome had slowly begun to build this, this, this teaching, the system of teaching over, over the centuries um, that was just different than what Martin Luther was finding in the scriptures, different about what it taught about scripture, different than what it taught about justification, different than what it taught about the gospel, different than what it taught about sanctification, a whole ton of issues. And, and what he said was, well, look, I, I mean, I can go to the, you know, I'm going to read a quote in a minute, he's saying, I, I can go to the popes and the councils, but they contradict each other. Or I can go straight to the source. Which one am I going to trust more? A good example uh, of this is uh, the practices of selling indulgences during the Reformation. This is kind of the paradigmatic uh, example. So most of you, I heard some chuckles, most of you know what it is already. In the Reformation period, you could actually, before Protestants came around, you could buy your salvation. Literally, I'm not speaking figuratively. You could buy it. Um, they had these things. So you buy indulgences. You, you pay for them in copper, in gold, in silver, in land, in service. You could, you could buy them a whole number of ways. And there's a little rhyme that went along with it uh, as Tetzel went around selling these. Uh, it was, uh, for every coin in the coffer rings, a soul from hell springs. Right? You could buy your salvation. Right? Basically, what you were actually doing is you were buying time off either for yourself or a loved one, even if they were dead, from purgatory. You're paying to, to reduce their sentence. <clears throat> Believe it or not, Rome still offers indulgences. They're different. Um, thankfully, uh, in, in some ways, Rome has moved a lot towards Protestantism over the last uh, several centuries. Um, 
but they still have indulgences. You don't, you don't buy them, uh, but you earn them. You earn them by going to mass. You earn them by confession to a priest. Uh, you earn them by saying a prayer for the Pope. Um, you earn them, and I wish I was kidding, you earn them by sharing a tweet from the Vatican. <laughs> it might be more trivial now, but it's still there. And for Protestants, we're going to come along and we're going to say, look, forgiveness is in Christ alone. The scripture teaches us it's in Christ alone. It's by grace alone. We don't, we don't contribute anything to our salvation. We, there, there's nothing I can do to take a single second off any measure of punishment that I deserve for my sin. And so when, when we come across something like indulgences and we compare that to the scripture and we see that everything is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by the free gift of the, of, of the grace of God, the question is, well, who's your authority? Is it what you find in the scriptures? Or is it what the church teaches? So when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door, he was calling the church to give up those practices, to change their authority structure. He was calling the church to come back under the authority of the scriptures. When he later stood before the Diet of Worms, um, by the way, if you ever see something that says the Diet of Worms, <laughs> it's a council at Worms, not a diet. Uh, so he stood trial and he, and he has this famous statement. He says, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the, uh, to the uh, word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Luther isn't just saying that he disagreed with, with Rome on their interpretation. It, it wasn't as simple as that. I, I, we, we disagree with our Baptist brothers on interpretation all the time on certain things. Right? It's not just a difference of interpretation. It's a difference in authority. It's a difference in who is your ultimate authority. He's saying that their, un, their, their entire understanding of the relationship between the church and the scriptures needed to shift. Now, as much as I belabor the point about the Roman Catholics, uh, I'm sorry to tell you that's not actually the main point. Because during the Reformation, there, there's a whole nether group that doesn't get nearly as much attention. And it's actually a group, when we find out more about them, I found that we either don't study them at all, or if we do study the Reformation, we have no clue what's happening with this group or very little clue what's happening with this group. We, we understand, I mean, the, the, the picture that I painted for Rome, for, uh, about the difference between the Protestants and Rome, how many of you have mostly heard before? Right, it's not that uncommon. How many of you could tell me why the Protestants disagreed with Rome? Right, how many of you can tell me why the Protestants loathed, I mean, absolutely abhorred the Anabaptists? A lot less hands. During the Reformation, Rome offered a criticism of the Protestants that was somewhat prophetic, actually. They said, look, 
if you guys get away from the church authority, what's going to happen? If you get away from having the scriptures read in Latin and Greek, and you open up into English and French and German, and you open up interpretation to every shoemaker and every artisan and every single laity, what's going to happen? Right? You're not just opening the floodgates, you're opening Pandora's box. Right? You are going to open up the church to every single interpretation and heresy that the church has been keeping at bay for these last 1,500 years. Right? You will fracture the church into a thousand pieces. How many of us look around the, the modern church landscape and think, oh yeah, we're super united. <laughs> the Catholics had a valid criticism. If you, if, if, you, if you wrest authority away from the church and give it to the scripture in the hand of the laity, you're going to break the church apart. One of the things that we understand for that is it's, it's very clear to understand why, why the Protestants disagreed with Rome on their authority structure. We have the scriptures. What we don't understand is when it came to the Anabaptists, why they suddenly hit the brakes. And they said, no, 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 no. You can't go that far into personal interpretation. Sorry, no. Right? And why... In, in many, many ways, if you read the language of the Protestants against the, the Catholics, it was harsh. If you read it against the, the, the Anabaptists, you don't, you don't read it among polite company in many ways. For, for the Anabaptists, this is, this is the group that Peter's message is going to apply to more for us than our, than our division between Rome as Protestants. It's actually going to work more internal into uh, the, the overall umbrella of the Protestants. The Anabaptists came in all shapes and sizes during this time. Um, it's somewhat simplistic to put it this way, but when, when we see the heresy of televangelists, and of prosperity ministers telling us that they had a secret revelation from God that we should send in our money to them because that will give us blessings. That's the Anabaptists. Um, when we hear our friends and our coworkers tell us that they had some mystical experience, I'm not trying to discount your personal experience during your prayer or anything like that. But, but if you're talking to your, your friends or coworkers and they have a mystical experience and it contradicts the scriptures, but they talk about it in a way that that experience, that religious experience, that's their truth. That's more important than what's found in the scriptures. The scriptures cannot judge their personal experience. That's the impulse of the Anabaptists. How many of you hear about that way more then you hear about your Protestant brothers and sisters being like, you know, I think I'm going to start praying to Mary. It's a lot more uh, of an impulse in Protestantism than going back to Rome. The Anabaptists, kind of a quick and dirty uh, definition of it, Anabaptist literally means a rebaptizer. Anna means re or over, Baptist baptizer. They're, they're the rebaptizers. They were the first movement, really by and large, to basically say, um, look, 
if someone received a baptism as an infant, we're going to rebaptize them as an adult. Right? They were they were really one of the first movements, but that in large took that tact. In some ways, we could look to our Baptist brothers and sisters and be like, ah, you're Anabaptists. It's not quite accurate. They are. Most of them would rebaptize children who had been baptized in infancy and became fresh in faith. But there's going to be a major difference between our brothers and sisters who, who are Baptists, who come from a history uh, of, uh, of federalism and particular Baptists and things like that, and Anabaptists. The major difference is going to basically be the Anabaptists held to a theological position uh, of private revelation. They were, by and large, if I can say it kind of anachronistically, charismatic. Overly charismatic. Very charismatic. Uber charismatic. Um, they believe that if we were submitted to the Spirit, that we will have mystical spiritual experiences. That if you attended a church that was not... So, so right now you're attending a church and you have one person up front talking. They're going to say you're not attending a Spirit-filled church because everybody should be giving prophecy. There's, there's a... Um, a section, there's a, a, a treatise that one of them wrote basically explaining why Anabaptists didn't attend established churches for, for Sunday worship, right? And, and they talk about having the free course of the Spirit, but this tract says, when such believers come together, every one of you, every one of you, has a psalm, a doctrine, a revelation, an interpretation, when someone comes to a church and constantly hears only one person speaking and all the listeners are silent, neither speaking nor prophesying, who can or will regard or confess the same to be a spiritual con congregation? The emphasis is on everybody. Everyone receiving private revelation and prophesying in the church. Otherwise, it's a dead church. That's why they didn't attend regular churches. For them, Scripture isn't the ultimate authority. Yeah, it's important, right? No Anabaptist is like, well, that Bible, let's just throw it out the window, right? That's why every televangelist has a cross. Every, every televangelist has a Bible on their pulpit. But the ultimate authority is in that private revelation, that special, that special word from God. That's the ultimate authority. If God gives you a direct revelation, how can it be wrong? John Owen once wrote, if private revelations agree with Scripture, they're needless. If they disagree with Scripture, then they're false. See, the, the point for the Reformers is that we have the sure revelation of God. If you have a private revelation that is basically just restating what's here, what's the point of the private revelation? You already have it in the sure word of God. If you have a private revelation that disagrees with what's in here, then it's false. This was one of the major reasons why they uh, hated the Anabaptists. Dale did an excellent job last week talking about the difference between sola scriptura and solo scriptura, right? Sp the difference between scripture alone and reading scripture as the only book that you ever read on anything ever, right? Those are two different things. For the Protestants, we still have uh, tradition. We still have creeds. We still have confessions. We don't say no creed but Christ. Um, 
what we offered was a needed correction for the traditionalism that had crept into Rome. The Anabaptist is an overcorrection. The Anabaptist is the one that's going to say they just going to scrap everything altogether. They're going to say that ecclesi the ecclesiastical tradition is not only unnecessary but unprofitable. You simply can't have uh, you can't have tradition trying to understand it because then you're imposing human invention on top of the text. Right? You're, you're imposing your human tradition on top of uh, uh, and restraining the work, the free course of the Holy Spirit. It's a position that's just not supported by the scriptures or by the church for nearly 2,000 years. Uh, ultimately, the scripture does need to stand above and criti critique tradition, even if tradition is just a helpful tool that keeps us kind of in the right lane. Right? What Anabaptism did was it just removed the guardrails. So this is where Peter's text comes roaring back in to apply to our situation. He says, you know, you want to know what's going to be a lamp to your feet? You want to know what's going to guide your path? What's going to give you directions to live in godliness and in hope and in truth and in faithfulness to God? You don't look to your personal experiences. You don't look to the mountaintop. Now, you don't look to the traditions of men either. Right? That's not our authority. You look to the scriptures. Right? Peter could have appealed to his mountaintop experience, but he didn't. But he also still brings it up. He still brings it up as a way to refute the objection that they're just following fables. Right? It's still profitable, but it's not the final authority. And Peter's not alone in this. He's really following the example of his teacher. Right? So when Jesus gives the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it ends in a very interesting way. Right? So Lazarus and the rich man are down in the afterlife. The rich man is suffering in hell. He sees Lazarus enjoying paradise, and he calls out to Abraham and he, after some negotiating to try to get some water. Uh, he calls out and he says, look, I still have brothers and I don't want them to join me here. Can you send Lazarus back to go and tell my brothers? And Abraham's response is, they have Moses and the prophets. And the rich man says, no, 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 no. But if someone were to raise from the dead, then they would believe. And Jesus has Abraham say, look, if if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't even believe even if someone raises from the dead. Right? It's clearly foreshadowing Christ's own resurrection. But, he, but Jesus in his parable is making the point what is going to be more authoritative? What's going to be more important? The scriptures, Moses and the prophets, or seeing somebody rise from the dead? I think our natural impulse is to be like, look, if I saw somebody rise from the dead. But really, it's the scriptures that's more sure. It's the scriptures that is our absolute authority. 
And Jesus confirms this later in, 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 Luke, in Luke 24, in the, same, in the same gospel as the rich man Lazarus. Uh, we read about Jesus meeting some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus after he has uh, died uh, and resurrected. And he keeps them from recognizing them. And he asks them what they're talking about. And they basically say, like, where have you been? Uh, don't you know that, that our teacher ha has died uh, and some of our women went to find him, but his body is gone? Right? Instead of revealing himself to them at that point as the resurrected Christ, what does he do? He basically gives them a hermeneutics class. He basically says, look, this is how you read the scriptures. This is how you read from Moses and the prophets how everything points to Christ. He gives them this little mini Bible lesson on how to read the scriptures to teach you about Jesus Christ. Comes in and eats with them. And when he breaks the bread, they finally recognize who he is. The veil is lifted and they recognize who he is. And they say this interesting thing. They say, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What's the thing that they remember from their encounter with Jesus? He's resurrected or he opened the scriptures to us. Right? The scriptures is the more sure uh, word to us. Jesus lived out the story of the rich man. He could, he could have shown his full glory like he did to Peter and James and John on the mountaintop. He could have. He could have shown the wounds in his hands and in his side like he did with Thomas. He could have, but he didn't. Because those experiences for those few people would not have fueled and given the authority to the church for the last 2,000 years. The scriptures do that. He showed them that the scriptures from beginning to end were all about them. Were all about him. And so when we're living through our, our lives throughout our day and we start having anxiety, we start having to go in for a massive surgery we're worried about our work or our job or something, uh, l let's be honest, something less than uh, standing on trial of the Diet of Worms possibly going to be burned as a heretic afterwards. Um, what's, our, what's our impulse? Again, probably not many of us are going to decide to uh, kneel down and pray to Mary. Right? But how many of us are going to start negotiating with God? It, you know, it, God, if, 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 you, if, you show me, if you show me your face, if you show me your presence, if, if you do something, then, then I'll be good. Right? Please, please bless me because then I'll be good. Right? If you give me a miracle, then I'll obey. Then I'll do what's in your scriptures. Do we turn on televangelists? Do we start listening for words of, because we all like positive words, we all like words of hope, right? Do we start listening how to live our, our best life now because it's encouraging to us? That's the impulse of the Anabaptists. 
you have a more sure word to you. And so for 2,000 years, the church has known Christ and him crucified through the scriptures. That's where we find him. Seek him where he will be found. And he's told us where he will be found. Sola Scriptura is the reformed belief that scripture alone is our authority. It's our guide. It's our instruction. It's God's word for us, his church. It's how we are to live uh, in a life pleasing and glorifying to him. We are to submit to it. So seek him where he is found. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us something so sure and so concrete that we can build our lives around it. We thank you that it gives us uh, instruction, it gives us uh, life, but it also just shows us your beauty. It can give us comfort without needing to go to prosperity preachers. It can give us hope without needing to interpret the signs of the times. Lord, it can give us peace and comfort because it tells us that we are at peace with you in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have it as guide rails. We thank you that we have it as an authority because if the scriptures wasn't an authority over the church, we would have ruined this thing a long time ago. We pray that you would be glorified not just in our lives individually, but in our lives as your bride, as we submit to your word and we find you where you are to be found. In Christ's name, amen.